The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. So, ooh, it sounds a little loud. Can I ask you to adjust the on the right hand side on the left hand side that white switch lever? Can you just that's good. Can you turn much better? A little better? Good. No? Still a little loud. Move it down. Okay, good. Is that okay? Still a little loud. I'm going to move myself. Yeah, it's just getting louder. This is going down? Mm-hmm. Something is wrong. Let's see. How's that? That's better. Okay, thank you. So, an example of impermanence. <laughs> the impermanence of the lack of flexibility in my knees is still a little loud, isn't it? Uh, we'll see if we can make this work. Can we turn it down just a little bit more? Okay, I'll just keep talking. That's, you know, we've got to get the echo. Good, good, good. That's great. Yeah, thank you. So, um, so appropriately, what we're going to talk about today is denying impermanence when things don't change. <laughs> Those things that we want to see change don't change. So, uh, last week, we talked about loss, impermanence as loss. And what we, what we talked about was a whole variety of losses, death, loss of job, loss of innocence, loss of doubt. And we described this loss as the absence of something that was there and is no longer there. Something that was mine and is no longer mine. Something I could rely on that is no longer to be relied on. We looked at reactions to this loss, anger, grief, addiction, distraction, delusion, ignoring it, stoicism, all reactions. And we talked about being able to to be clear about what we see involves being able to see something just as it is and not to see what's missing. So we had the example of the the tree that had been taken down. And every time I looked out the window, that tree was missing and I noticed it was missing. And what I was really doing was always putting the tree back. And how often we do that when we lose something, there's a process not of seeing what's actually there, but putting the tree back. Putting back what we've lost. And so then we talked about the wisdom of becoming familiar with loss so that we see how we react and what our mind does, what the mind does in reaction to loss. And one of the things I suggested is that you might give away something you love. So 
something you no longer needed and just see what happened. So I did that. (laughs) I gave away something I really loved and I wasn't actually through with it, you know? I really, I, I realized I wanted it. I had absolutely no trouble giving it away. I gave it to someone I love, which makes it easier. Oh, here, take this. It looks better on you. It's gone. Wow. I hadn't even worn it. I loved it. It was interesting to watch my head Watch the mind react to having given this to somebody who's going to enjoy it, I think, much more than I. And I certainly enjoyed giving it to her. And to see, oh, it's gone. (laughs) Oh. The experience of that was really interesting for me. I have no regrets. And yet... I notice the absence of what I had wanted. Oh, that little trace of, oh. So today, what we're going to add to our list is the absence of consistency in the form of predictability. If impermanence is inconsistency, instability, not permanent, The lack of predictability fits right into this. Now, it may not be what you think. One of the things we're very good at is creating contracts. If I do this, then this is what will happen. Right? We all do that. If I'm infinitely kind, everyone will love me. If I am a perfect meditator, I will be a perfect meditator. If I can follow my breath forever, I'll be perfect. We make all kinds of contracts. We say, ah, if this is what happens, if this is, what, this is where I want to go, so if I do that, everything will be just the way I want them. And then it doesn't happen that way. Almost ever. <laughs> Almost ever. What do we do when the thing we crave doesn't happen, despite all of our skillful actions and intentions? We're not talking about wanting bad stuff and being greedy. We're talking about, I want to be a better person. I want the world to be safe for everyone. And it's not happening. Huh. Where do we stand in that space? What I'm going to talk about is is actually pretty subtle, so I'm not even sure that what I have to say today is going to work. But I do have something I'd like to share with you, so bear with me. And if we get to the end and I've failed completely, well, there's a real possibility of that. So we'll try, okay? So I'm sorry? It's all about impermanence. It's truly about impermanence. And exactly that is the idea. That, that in fact, if I have a fixed notion about what I think you need to see, I am not, I am denying impermanence. I'm trying to claim that I've got the perfect, the perfect insight 
No. So that, that's what we're going to talk about. So we're going to see. So one of the things we're going to look at is the difference between goals and intentions. Because a lot of times we have this idea about what good looks like. Good looks like this. If it's in this box, it has these colors. And unless we get this box with these colors and these shapes, it's not good. When we have a fixed idea about almost anything, we are not paying attention to the principle of impermanence. When we have an intention, it's more about a process. I have an intention toward kindness. I don't know what the perfectly kind person looks like. I may have a model, but I can't be that other person. I can only be the person who shows up in these conditions with these people that I'm sharing the space with. And under these conditions, I will try to be kind. Very often, we get trapped by our idea about what does kind look like. So maybe kind looks like I always put out cookies. So if I don't put out cookies, does that mean I'm no longer kind? Actually, no. <laughs> so anything that we adopt, any, what we would like to look at is the difference between impermanence and certitude. To the degree that we're certain about something, we need to say, uh-oh, what else is here? What else is happening? It can also represent stuckness. So we can see that beliefs become something that we're clinging to, even good beliefs, something that we're clinging to. That can give rise to suffering. It can give rise to all those feelings of inadequacy that we have. I'm a fraud. If I can't talk about this, I must be a fraud. I shouldn't be here. It's amazing how often people go through life thinking they're frauds. <laughs> really. <sighs> Maybe we are. Part of what happens is that we see ourselves in a particular way. We see ourselves as a permanent thing, a permanent way of being. I'm a person who, fill in the blank, I'm a person who is this way, or I am a person who wants to be this way. I was talking to somebody last week, one of the uh, online meditation courses. We, we run an introduction to Insight Meditation Course online, and then we mentor people, and we get people from all over the world. And mostly we think that they're beginners, but I'm talking to... Uh, three of the people that I'm talking to regularly have been meditating for 15, 20, 30 years. Astounding. They're taking this course with a particular intent. And what I'm learning from them is just amazing. But one of the things that keeps coming up is, oh, well, I can't do that because this is the way I meditate. This is what meditation looks like. So I have someone who... who um, 
was having trouble. She says, I can't really follow my breath. I don't follow my breath. The mind, my mind, does not follow my breath. I found that astounding. This woman has been meditating for a long time. And in fact, meditating does not require you to follow your breath. It's not a requirement. It's a key part of our technique for being in the moment, having an object of attention, being able to keep on that object of attention, being able to stay with it. The ability to stay with the breath is is being able to train the mind to be in the room right here, experiencing directly what that breath is doing. On the other hand, many people can sit for a long time on the breath and they're best just following the rhythm and, you know, lulling themselves to sleep. It isn't inherently good. It isn't inherently bad. It's changing all the time. And what we try to do when we follow the breath is notice all those changes. But if we have an idea that unless I can follow the breath, I can't meditate, we're lost. We can't do it. Views are, in fact, non-permanent. Although we hold to our own tenaciously. So, for example, what I might think is beautiful, you might think is tacky. Or you might think it's somewhat less than beautiful. Or you might not, it might not even touch you in a way having to do with beauty. Things that my husband finds beautiful, I kind of scratch my head at sometimes, you know. He, like, he likes really mucky marshes full of bugs and frogs, you know. And I think they're interesting, but I don't think they're beautiful. <laughs> And this changes for all of us. What we find beautiful, what we find meaningful. And yet, in the beginning, every day we get up, we believe countless numbers of things which are absolutely true. And it's a denial of the impermanence. It's really denying impermanence. If I'm meditating and I'm not calm, I must be doing it wrong because this is what a meditator looks like. Have you watched people do walking meditation? There's kind of a special style we use where you you pick the, the, the lift the foot, move the foot, place the foot, and everybody is mindfully going slowly and, and we all look like robots. <laughs> Not that this is a bad way for walking meditation, it actually is quite wonderful. But I find it's useful for me if I do things at different speeds, not always the same, so that I can really pay attention to what's happening because it becomes too automatic for me. This is, for me, this is what happens. On any given day, the experience changes. And if I'm paying attention to the experience, I'm not trying to make it always the same. It's that making it always the same that is denying impermanence. Even what we call good is not always the same. 
and yet we get kind of stuck on it. You know, so, so to be a gentle, loving person, I must never experience anger. If anger arises, I'm bad. No. No, if anger arises, I have a choice to stick with that anger or let the anger go. I have a choice of what I'm going to put energy into. But anger arises. <laughs> Doubt. I'm not good enough. I'm just not good enough. One of the things I truly, truly admire about Gil Fronstel is every day he shows up and he's good enough. I don't know what goes on in his head, but he presents himself as, okay, what's going to happen now? This is something I aspire to. But it doesn't mean that it's a good. It doesn't mean that unless I can do that, I'm bad. Sticking to something and labeling it as a fixed thing is not paying attention to impermanence. There's an underlying flaw that meditation, for example, is always the same. We confuse aspiration with expectation. What is your expectation? What is the contract you make? If only this were true, I'd be really mindful. If only I had this done, I'd be really great. If only my cushion was punched up or the person next to us was doing something a little different that wasn't so distracting. You know, I noticed this this weekend we had uh, uh, my husband's daughter and her family there. And I felt, and so there are two little boys, two and four. Cute, wonderful, love these kids, irritating. (laughs) Screaming at the table. Don't know. No, we don't scream at the table. And I watched myself create these images of how these perfect children would behave at the table. These are already perfect children. They can be guided. (laughs) But really, they don't become bad. Some behavior needs to be altered. But watching my mind go... (laughs) was interesting. And I would remind myself that I love these people. Where is this coming from? Do I have... And then I watch the mind try to justify it. Well, of course, of course. Look what they're doing. They're screaming at the table. One of the problems we have is the danger the real danger of becoming so attached to what it would be like if I was a good person, that we abandon trying to be a good person. Oh, I can never do that. I'm just going to stop trying. We do this in a hundred ways. Well, I can't do that. Well, I know I should be exercising, but you know, I'm not an exercise person. I'm just not an exercise person. (sighs) I have a responsibility to keep my body healthy. 
but I don't have a responsibility to become an athlete. (laughs) And somewhere in between that space is a middle way where I can see the impermanence of my body. I can't keep it young. I can keep it fit. What does fit look like? Do I have ideas around that? How am I creating this world that, is, that I can't measure up to? So part of what we need to be able to do is to be unsure of the outcome and have that be okay. Does that make any sense? To be unsure of the outcome and have that be okay. To not know the outcome. To live life as a process. A constantly changing process. We don't know where we stand. We can't compare ourselves. We can't say, well, I've gotten this far. I haven't gotten this far. Somebody once described to me a toxic situation she was in where she was taking a class from someone who seemed to have a very strong need to be in a power position and dismissed people. At least that's how it felt to her. She felt like she was constantly being dismissed. And she was angry about it, and she had to stand up to him, and, you know, I have a, I have a responsibility to not let him do this to other people. I'm stronger. And whew, she was really agitated. But, you know, her suffering wasn't actually caused by him. It was caused by her buttons being pushed where she did not like being dismissed. You do not dismiss me. All sorts of reactions were set up because she would not be dismissed. So that all of the agitation in her mind was actually not created by him. This is not a defense. It's not saying that his actions were acceptable even. But the agitation she was feeling, the ill will she was generating, the anger she was generating, was from this line that shall not be crossed. And it was an immovable line. It was an unchanging line. It didn't bend with the circumstances. So we resist, we form allies, we justify our positions. It's very difficult to exist in the world and not have things that we care about that we're willing to fight for. This is how we think the world should be. I would like to have an ideal world. What does your ideal world look like? The ideal is not real and it is not fixed. There may may be some important characteristics, but it is not fixed. We all have situations where we're faced with the insolvable. Thich Nhat Hanh talked about 
the monks would ask him during the Vietnam War, when will the war end? Why doesn't the war end? And he said, even war is impermanent. He didn't stop standing up for the end of the war, nor did he say, everything is hopeless because it doesn't end on my schedule. Everything, I'm in despair because this seems unattainable. One of the things I intended to do this morning was read you two poems by a woman, and I left my book at home. <laughs> so now I'm going to fake it. So the poet is a woman named Natasha Trethewey. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. She is of uh, the product of a mixed marriage. She is half black and half white. She was born in Mississippi. She grew up in a world of ambiguity. She could pass. She spent some time, she spent a lot of time trying to pass as a white person. She hated herself for that. It was her mother who was black. She, her parents divorced when she was six. And she spent half her time with her mother and half her time with her father in different states. I don't know if it's half time. She spent time with both of them. So the first poem, which I've not been able to find online in the book that I can't read to you, was about an event that happened to her in history class in high school. And they were talking about the, the, the history person was saying, you know, the blacks were better under slavery. They had they were taken care of, and they were fed, and clothed, and housed. And, and she said, I said nothing. And then they went on, and, and they said, well, we're going to watch Gone with the Wind. It's a true picture of the South. And she said, they did. And there was a picture, a caricature of all the black characters were in this particular style, which is insulting. And she said, we all guarded the lie, including me. Because she didn't, she, she didn't feel safe, right? So this is the poem that, that from the book that won her the Pulitzer Prize. This is about, this is called The Native Guard. And it's a poem about it's, a, it's called an elegy for the native guards, and it's about a, a particular place where there was a civil war battle. We leave Gulfport at noon, gulls overhead trailing the boat, streamers, noisy fanfare, all the way to Ship Island. What we see first is the fort, its roof of grass, a lee, half reminder of the men who served here, a weathered monument to some of the dead. Inside, we follow the ranger, hurried though we are to get to the beach. He tells of graves lost in the gulf, the island split in half when Hurricane Camille hit. Shows us casements, cannons, the store that sells souvenirs, tokens of history long buried. The Daughters of the Confederacy has placed a fact, plaque there at the fort's entrance, 
each Confederate soldier's name raised hard in bronze, no names carved for the Native Guards, Second Regiment, Union Men, Black Phalanx. What is the monument to their legacy? All the grave markers, all the crude headstones, water lost, now fish dart among their bones, and we listen for what the waves intone. Only the fort remains near 40 feet high, round, unfinished, hap open to the sky, the elements, wind, rain, God's deliberate eye. All the grave markers, all the crude headstones, water lost. Now fish dart among their bones, and we listen for what the waves intone. Only the fort remains near 40 feet high, round, unfinished, half open to the sky, the elements, wind, rain, God's deliberate eye. So there was a memorial to the Confederate soldiers, nothing for the Union soldiers who were all black. The storm came in, washed all of the graves away, all of them, all the bones intermingled in the sea, all the same. Where is the memory? Where is the memory? I was interested in this poem because juxtaposition with, juxtaposed with the other poem where she talked about not saying. In this one, she's also not saying, but in a really strong voice. <laughs> it, is, it is, I do not pretend that this is not true, that these lives are not seen. These lives are seen. And those who have the plaque to them are also gone, the same. The reason that I'm interested in this, in this context, is that it is not fixed. What she's saying is, I live in a world where it is all intermingled, and I don't choose a place. I'm not trying to be one way or the other. I'm trying to just see what is true. When we want, when we, when we work hard on some point of view, and it doesn't seem to move the juggernaut of the position. I, I personally truly want to see all people seen as individuals and as the same. But I don't see everyone the same, despite my intention. Maybe my choices aren't based on black and white, maybe they're seen in a different way, like not screaming at the table. I have a place of value on that. Seeing how we divide people, how we see ourselves 
is part of really understanding impermanence. If we don't seem to be able to move the position on something that's important to us, we feel ineffectual, we're saddened, we feel impotent. Are these feelings real and permanent? No. But we act as if they are. In fact, sometimes we press beyond where we would would take something to make our point because I want to be victorious. I want to obliterate the opposition. They have to be wiped out. Then I am a victor. I'm safe if I'm a victor. This is a, a reification. It's making me into, this is what a victor looks like, as if you are not. We think if only I had the power, I would fix everything. So I'm going to share with you a quote from Abraham Lincoln who said, Nearly all people, all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. We think I must retain anger to fight this injustice. Failing to see that rousing anger constantly creates anger in our own hearts and is counter to where we're going. I can't free this person. I can't forgive this person. This is a failing. I need to be able to forgive this person or I can't move forward. What about just moving forward? Why am I creating a barrier to where I need to go? Why am I making that a condition? Because it would be me making that a condition. I've seen it in my family where I will have a conflict with someone in my family and I'll say, they just need to see that they're this way, that they need to see that they're doing this terrible thing. which is a way of me making them permanently some way. And only when I can allow them to be a different way is it possible for me to see them in a different way. In the Connected Discourses, the Buddha said, he was talking to a man named Mahanama who was questioning him about how to be a lay person and follow him. And he said, In what way, Venerable Sir, is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? The Buddha said, Here, Mahanama, a lay follower is wise, He possesses wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in wisdom. He pays attention to the arising and passing away to understand this in its deepest form is to free oneself of suffering. When 
when we see deeply that something is arising and passing away, when we stop trying to make things stay the same or change them into something that we think is great, when we stop doing that, when we see things arising and passing away, we become disenchanted. We, we find ourselves no longer enchanted by this idea, this concept of how things should be. And when we become disenchanted, we let go of the passion around that. The mind is not agitated around it. When we're disenchanted, we are dispassionate. And through dispassion, the mind is liberated. Dispassion does not mean indifference. Dispassion has to do with not fulmigating around things that are in fact impermanent. Not developing an agitated mind. To be steady without the requirement to be stable. Does this make sense? To be steady. Stephen Batchelor said this. I like this quote from him. The Buddha's freedom is found not in destroying greed and hatred, but in comprehending them as transient, impersonal emotions that will pass away of their own accord as long as you do not cling to and identify with them. The Buddha's freedom is found not in destroying greed and hatred, but in comprehending them as transient, impersonal emotions that will pass away of their own accord as long as you do not cling to and identify with them. This is the task. This is the way to be with impermanence. To not cling to fixed views. To see views as impermanent. To watch how things change in every moment. How your own views change. How the views of the people around you change. The very notion that nothing is changing. It's not getting better. I'm not getting better arises out of not being able to see clearly that everything is changing, including my views of what is good, of what constitutes bad, that skillful action in the world is being able to see, accept, and act in an impermanent world to be able to tolerate, to be able to welcome the absence of predictability. The absence of predictability. Whether we're talking about pain management or saving the world, it applies. So I'm going to close with a poem by W.S. Merwin to waiting, to waiting. What else can you do in an impermanent world? You spend so much of your time expecting to become someone else. 
always someone who will be different, someone to whom a moment, whatever moment it may be, at last has come and who has been met and transformed into no longer being you and so has forgotten you. Meanwhile in your life, you hardly notice the world around you, lights changing, sirens dying along the buildings, your eyes intent on a sight you do not see yet, not yet there, as long as you are only yourself, with whom, as you recall, you were never happy to be left alone with for long. Let me read it again. You spend so much of your time expecting to become someone else, always someone who will be different, someone to whom a moment, whatever moment it may be, at last has come and who has been met and transformed into no longer being you and so has forgotten you. Meanwhile in your life, you hardly notice the world around you, lights changing, sirens dying along the buildings, your eyes intent on a sight you do not yet see, not yet there, as long as you are only yourself, with whom, as you recall, you were never happy to be left alone for long. May you see yourselves in a favorable light. May you welcome impermanence. May impermanence always be your friend. Thank you. So, I have no idea (laughs) whether it worked or not, whether you object to what I say, whether you think it's nonsense. Does anybody have any comments? Yes, we have a... Please use the mic. Two microphones. I guess I could try to use them both. Um, I uh, often think that I need to work on my attachments. Mm. And um, I guess one of the things I'm getting some insight to is that's really another way of saying I'm not accepting impermanence. Because I'm usually attached to something in the past, something that's not going the way I want it to. Um, And to me, it's my motivation for meditating. Because when I meditate, I'm in the moment. I'm relieved of all of that. (laughs) And there's no attachment. Um, So I guess my question is, um, do you have any suggestion about um, ways to meditate or things to keep in mind? not meta, or maybe it is, uh, ways to address the issue of detachment and, and, and in general, impermanence. Well, so, I would say impermanence is something that I've discovered along the way. That is, I didn't set out to learn impermanence. It's more something that arose out of just noticing. Now, I just noticed this bag over here, and there's a place that says, breathe deeply on it. And uh, when I first started meditating, I went on a a retreat with uh, Joan Halifax, a a Seshin. And I happened to be sitting right next to her, and she was facing me. So she was sitting there, facing me on the side, and so she noticed that I never took deep breaths, that I, breathed, I was breathing shallowly. So when I had my interview with her, she said, you really need to learn to, t- to do a belly breath because 
your, your, it really will affect your ability to meditate. And so for years I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I just, I, you know, I never breathe deeply. Well, then, you know, I went on a long retreat, or a few, and I discovered that even if I started with shallow breathing, I very often ended up with that deep breathing. And what she was trying to get me to do was kind of leapfrog into a space where my breathing was, in fact, perhaps freer. But for me, it was much more useful to arrive there as part of the process than to have it as a goal. And I usually, when I meditate, don't breathe deeply. I just watch what arises. And what I notice is that my breath moves around and it changes and it, it uh, is sometimes deep and it's sometimes long and sometimes it's very shallow and sometimes I have trouble finding it. And that is how we discover impermanence. When we realize it is not a certain way. Meditation is not a certain way. When we can sit in an agitated meditative state and, and see that as a good meditation. Because we're just noticing what's there. So it's an attention on clarity. So sometimes when I find myself a little too wrapped up in the technique, I will say, so what else is here? What else is happening besides this technique? Because, you know, usually, if I'm really wrapped up in the technique, I'm not actually paying very much attention. I'm doing something because it's right. And I'm, in fact, denying impermanence by that. And so by giving myself freedom to notice something else, to not be too attached to that technique, to not over-effort technique, I'm able to see something I did not see before. And it is in that seeing that I notice impermanence. So it isn't a thing you do. It is an openness that you develop. It is a loosening. Yes, you have a response. Thank you. I have a little bit of a follow-up because I have noticed at times when I'm really agitated and I sit down to meditate and, you know, 10, 15 minutes in, I'm thinking... This is not working. This is not going anywhere. Because every time I start to follow my breath, I, I lose my focus, and I'm swept away, and the problem that, that I'm agitated about. Usually what I do after 15 or 20 minutes, I just say, okay. And I just let it have control. And then I come back to my breath eventually, and then it takes control. Is that kind of in line? You know, I don't like to say I'm I'm forcing myself to meditate on a problem, but I, I what seems to help me is just to quit fighting against it. And if it wants to be in charge, I'll let it be in charge for a while. <laughs> so, so here's the thing: what is the intention of the meditation? Right. So, if your if your intention is to become calm and peaceful, then you know, you might do something to increase your concentration, like do 10 minutes of metta, which would usually slow the mind, slow the agitation enough to 
to make it more likely that you can stay on the cushion and be better able to follow your breath. If your intention in meditation is to be acutely aware of the spark of now, every time you notice you're coming back to your breath is a celebration. Well, I'm here. I'm here. And then it doesn't matter how often your mind wanders. When you notice your mind is wandering, if you revel in it, oh, this is so pleasant, oh, oh, this is really pleasant, you're not coming back. It's that coming back part that can be important. So this is another way of saying it depends on what your intention is when you sit down. It's a good idea to have an intention. So usually when I sit, I am looking for stillness because I see more clearly when my mind is not agitated. Agitation is usually a good sign of um, suffering of some sort or another. So what doesn't work is to deny the agitation to pretend you're not agitated, to force the agitation to go away, to be so dissatisfied with the agitation that that you're creating a different thing than what is actually happening. Now what's happening is dissatisfaction with agitation. It's not even agitation anymore. You can notice the change. You can notice anything. You can't do it wrong. Every time you are aware of something, even if it's aware of awareness, you're here, in the room, now, in this moment. What, what we do when we meditate is we kind of had a balance between mindfulness and stillness. And most people find that, that a balance works best for clarity, for being in the moment. Sometimes it's just not what's happening. Yes. Uh, your, talk remi- your talk reminded me of a quote by Voltaire that says, um, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an observed one. That's good. <laughs> and who is the quote by? Voltaire. Voltaire, uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, it was very interesting to listen to um, what you shared uh, with us today because I hadn't, like if you had asked me what is impermanence, like I would have not really thought about impermanence in the way you described it today. Like I was more thinking about what you described last week, like it was kind of, oh yeah, that kind of like is related. But... In a sense, um, you know, I kind of found myself, um, hmm. you know, you kept giving an example and then you said, oh, that's impermanence. And I kind of like dismissed the word impermanence initially because it felt it was not fitting into my my view of impermanence. But I relaxed into it and, and it gave me actually a lot of, you know, insight into looking at things that happened to me in the past couple of days in a different way and just kind of like in relaxing and being in the process. Yeah, great. You know, not clinging in the outcome. Uh, I think that was really, really useful. Um, 
So thank you. Beautiful. Great. So during much of your talk, I was um, experiencing the, a notion that the only thing permanent in my mind is the denial of impermanence. Um, <laughs> and then I try. And then I went a little farther. I think, as I noticed that I was hang uh, that I hang on, not just that it was happening now, but also at other times, I hang on to a belief that I must have my anger when necessary to defend myself. And I, far as I can tell, I've been hanging on to this notion from my childhood on. And, uh, and so it's, it seemed not so much a question of a belief in impermanence, but rather finding some way to let go of this need. Mm -hmm. Then it would become less permanent or impermanent. Um, Uh, and the only thing I the only thing I've come up with so far is that it would be valuable for me to practice kindness when I feel angry or when I want to use the anger to defend myself I don't know if I can do that in the moment but I'll see if I can it, it could be a very useful thing. It might be more useful for you to see kindness in yourself rather than pushing away the anger. See your intention to be kind rather than the requirement to be kind. It's useful to separate anger, which is a negative emotion, from the energy of anger. And you can have access to the energy without the anger. The need you described as the need to defend yourself. And you wanted the energy to defend yourself. Can you defend yourself with energetic kindness? Without the anger. This is not impossible. I hope you're right. <laughs> I don't yet believe it. So, so the other day, when my grandson was screaming in the living room, not at the table, but in the living room, he was practicing his cock-a-doodle-doo. <clears throat> I, I had asked him not to scream because I was getting a headache. And so I walked into the living room, and he looked at me like, oh, she's going to yell at me. And in that moment, I realized I didn't have to yell at him. But I needed him to stop screaming. And so I said, you know, it would really be nice for me if you didn't screech when you cock-a-doodle-doo, because it gives me a headache. Calmly, quietly, I was able to say this. And he said, Oh, I thought you were going to yell at me. Because he knew. 
And so just being able to say in a gentle voice, this is really what I need now, worked with him in that moment. I mean, he's, he's four, you know. <laughs> Screaming is what four-year-olds like to do. <laughs> so we have to, we have to find a way without too. me getting over-agitated. He, ha- he doesn't have impulse control. I should. Sometimes should. I do. <laughs> Sometimes I do. You know? He did. He did. He was so afraid I was going to yell at him. You know? So, when you separate anger from the energy, you still can use energy, and you can use energy in a a soft-textured way. We are used to, we are used to the idea that getting something done requires the energy of anger, and that by feeding the anger, we're feeding the energy. When we can see that they're separate, we don't have to feed the ill will in our hearts, and we still have the energy to do what's required. It'll work. Thank you. Okay, we need to stop. Thank you all very much.